Good work, Carol. Right, shall we keep that uh, open and uh, let's pray as we look at this together. Lord God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for uh, your words, uh, which this is part of. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, use it to speak to us uh, through it by your spirit, uh, to change us as people and to draw our eyes and trusts to the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder what you're thinking as that passage was, was read, apart from, thank goodness I'm not Carol. Uh, I mean, perhaps you were thinking, well, what, you know, what the heck, frankly, are we doing looking at this this morning? An ancient account of unpronounceable kings and battles from about 2,000 years uh, before Christ. If I want pitched battles, well, I'll watch Game of Thrones. Uh, we've got busy lives, just, just getting here with the children is an achievement. Don't we have more interesting things to look at, more contemporary issues to consider. What on earth has this account in Genesis got to do with us today? Well, if, if the New Testament is to be, to be believed, it's got a lot to do with us, because Paul writes, doesn't he, in his second letter to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is true, even of this passage this morning. If you're uh, visiting us this morning, um, you join us in a series where we're looking, as Richard was saying, at the life of Abraham. Abraham had been called into a special relationship uh, with God and given a set of promises by God. And the big question the series throws up, really, is, is this. Can we trust God to keep his promises? Can we trust God to keep his promises. Uh, on the one hand, that is a question, isn't it, about, about God. Is God trustworthy? That is, can God be trusted to keep his promises? That, that is a legitimate question to pose because the promises given to Abraham seem almost unbelievable. A promise that Abraham would have many children, even though he's old. Uh, his wife is barren. They've got no children at the moment. A promise of a land uh, to live in, even though there are other people living in that land who seem formidable. It is far from obvious how these promises can come to pass. Can God be trusted to keep his promises? On the other hand, that question asks, uh, it poses a question about us and our faith. Can we trust God to keep his promises? So not so much is God dependable, but will we depend on him? Will we trust him as the one who is faithful? That is the direction that the New Testament takes us in uh, on Abraham, because Abraham is repeatedly held up for us uh, as the model of a believer who trusts in God, the man of faith. He gets almost a whole chapter in Romans on that, a significant section of Hebrews, Abraham is a man who trusts God. Can God be trusted? Can we trust God? Well, this account with its its ancient kings' battles, Abraham's SAS-style manoeuvres, his response uh, to the events, it shows us what a life of trust in the living God looks like. I think we see that through three lessons uh, in this passage. The first is this. God's people can face tough times. God's people can face tough times. 
This account begins, doesn't it, with, with a big clash of uh, superpowers and a war. And I think verses 1 to 11 are not that easy uh, to follow. In a nutshell, we've got a battle of four kings against five kings. So you've got four powerful ruling kings that are operating in the northeast area, uh, away from Abraham in today's Iran, Iraq, led by Kurdaloma, by all accounts of force to be reckoned with. And then there were the five rogue or rebel kings ruling in the Jordan Valley. They've been subject uh, or subordinate to Kurdaloma for 12 years, we're told, verse 4, but they decide we've had enough, probably don't want to pay taxes anymore, sick of being second fiddle, so they rebel. No, you don't, say the four northern ruling kings led by Kurdaloma. They respond by invading, and they come down in a big sweeping movement from north to south, and back up from the south, smashing and conquering everyone as they come. They encircle the five kings, and there's a pitched battle in every sense that follows. And it is a disaster uh, for the five rebel kings. They are comprehensively defeated, and they flee, verse 10. And for good measure, the four kings clean up all the goods, all the food, they pillage everything, verse 11. But significantly, this is also, isn't it, a disaster for a member of Abraham's family. We saw last week how Abraham and his nephew Lot, they'd parted company off the back of a family dispute in order to have land that they could each graze on. Given first choice, Lot had taken the land of Sodom, looked to be the best land, but it proves to be a disastrous choice, verse 12. The four kings also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. This is a, this is a big problem um, for Abraham. Lot is a member of his family. He's a nephew of the man that God is blessing. He's, the, he's one of the family that God cares about. Part of the gang. If you think back, this is big problem number three that Abraham has faced. First, there was famine uh, in the lands. There's been aggravation between Lot uh, and Abraham, a domestic dispute. Uh, And now Lot has been kidnapped in this military campaign, carted off to a foreign land, captured up in, in the machinations of superpowers. If you were Abraham, you would be thinking, wouldn't you, Where is this life of blessing? God has called me to live in a special relationship with him, but it is one problem after another. And they're big problems, serious problems. One of the more um, bizarre stories I thought of this summer uh, was of Boris Becker's apparent appointment as a diplomat for the um, Central African Republic. I have actually read since that it probably didn't actually happen in reality. And having watched Wimbledon, it's hard to see what skills I think he would bring to it. As a pundit, it's not always that coherent. But very usefully for him, being uh, a diplomat would provide him with diplomatic immunity. So it would give him immunity from the bankruptcy proceedings, people trying to get uh, money off him. I think what Genesis teaches us as we read about Abraham, the man of faith, is that the person who puts their faith in God is not given immunity from the trials of life. 
A person of faith doesn't live, do they, in a cocoon? Yeah, it's a life of blessing and relationship with God. We're kept by God, but we're kept in the midst of mess, not out of the mess. God is going to use Abraham to be a blessing uh, to the world, and to do that, he must live uh, in the world. If you think about it, this is God's way, isn't it? This is how God, God works. 2,000 years after this event, God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to the mess of our world. To, to be born uh, in a barn, to, to walk on dusty roads, to know temptation, to experience separation, rejection, to know the pain of betrayal by a friend, to face humiliation, even death. He came to be our saviour, to bring blessing to us. And that meant he had to be in the world to experience all that that means. Abraham is called into a special relationship with God, yet has all the usual trials of life, big and small. Not because he lacks faith. He is the man of faith. If if we're Christian today, we are called into the same blessed relationship with God. But it is not a life, is it, of immunity. A life lived in a cocoon. Jesus taught that that the rains, the floods, the winds uh, will come. Many of us know that. But it's in the storms that God is often at work. A few weeks ago, I saw a really powerful interview on uh, Songs of Praise with Simon Thomas, the Sky Sports ex-Blue presenter, Norwich City fan, uh, no less, and a Christian. Out of nowhere, you may know the story, Simon's 40-year-old wife was diagnosed with leukaemia and died in three days leaving behind him and his nine-year-old, their nine-year-old son. Christian's world turned upside down in 72 hours. Simon said this, he said, At times I've literally been holding on by one finger to my faith. I've come close at times to saying I can't do this anymore. This feels like an episode of the Krypton Factor. I'm trying to find God in all this, and I can't. It feels like you've gone quiet, and yet he's not left my side. He has not left me. God's people can face tough times. But second, we see in this passage, we see the hidden hand of God. Hidden hand of God. Someone escapes uh, from the four kings, uh, verse 13, and reports Lot's capture to Abraham. So Abraham decides, I'm going to mount this SAS-style mission to rescue Lot, verse 14. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. This is a daring plan, isn't it? No seasoned gambler is going to put money on an Abraham 
victory. 318 men was probably very small uh, compared with a coalition of armies that has just routed everyone uh, in sight. So this kamikaze nighttime uh, raid and the recovery of Lot, it is a surprising success. It is an unlikely success. Why has the author recorded this for us? Is it to draw our attention to Abraham's shrewd military strategy skills? Or could our attention be drawn to something else? In every narrative passage in Genesis, there is the hidden hand of the invisible but all-powerful God. That is where our eyes are being drawn here. God has brought Abraham into a special relationship with him. God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In one sense, here are Abraham's enemies. They'd captured his nephew, Lot. Of course God would be on his side. The writer's saying, you know, look, God keeps his promises. God is not explicitly mentioned here, but the writer expects us to see something of the fulfillment of those promises in these events. But behind human activities is the one living God at work who keeps his promises. Doesn't mean life's going to be simple or that events are easy to unfold as they happen at the time. But the writer wants us to know God is absolutely faithful. He he does what he says he's going to do. He keeps his promises. We can't draw a direct parallel from Abraham um, to us. But this this account does not say that we're going to be kept safe in the way that we think we should be kept safe in every situation. But if we are Christian, we have, don't we, the same God. And he has made the same promises to his people today. Because, as Paul writes, all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. So, big picture, what is happening through Jesus? God is building his church. There may seem to be ups and downs in our church, in the church Worldwide. But as Jesus taught, the, the gates of hell will not prevail. A great multitude is being gathered that no one will be able to count from every nation, tribe, people and language in a new creation of blessing, a place where there will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain, where God will wipe away tears from human eyes, where the dwelling of God is with men. Here's another promise of Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever we are, if if we come to Jesus, he will never turn us away. Maybe you've never come to Jesus. If you come in faith, he will not turn you away. If if we have come to Jesus, he will never let us go. Whatever we face, 
Jesus is faithful to that promise. If we put our faith in Jesus, we put our faith in the promise-keeping God. The God who does not let go. The God who enables us to hang on with one finger. God's people can face tough times. We see the hidden hand of God at work. I think third and most important, there is, isn't there, the choice of faith. The choice of faith. Do you see that Abraham gets back uh, from this battle and two very different kings come out to meet him? Two kings that we are meant uh, to contrast. So do you see the first king uh, appears at verse 17? After Abraham returned from defeating Kerdelema and the allies, kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then the second king, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the most, God most high, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. If we're in any doubt that victory comes from God, Melchizedek appears and assures Abraham that is the case. Melchizedek is quite a curious, quite enigmatic uh, figure uh, in the Bible. This is all we get on him in, in the book of Genesis. He next appears in Psalm 110, and then uh, we get uh, details on him, a sort of explanation on him in Hebrews 7, new insights. We don't have time to drill into all of those passages now, but just note the following. The name Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. Salem means peace. He is a priest of God most high. Hebrews tells us the eternal priest forever. We get no backstory, do we, in Genesis? There's no genealogy. Hebrews says that is because he has no antecedents and he has no successes. He is eternal. So here we have the king of righteousness, the king of peace, a priest and eternal king. Curious. It is as if God has modelled Melchizedek on the son of God who would be born 2,000 years later. As if Melchizedek is a type of the Jesus to come, a foreshadowing of the Christ. What does Abraham do in return? He responds in humble allegiance. He gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He knows who he wants to serve. Abraham is saying, I want to belong to you. I want to belong to this God. I am pledging my allegiance to this king, the king that Melchizedek represents. What about, in contrast, the king of Sodom, verse 21? The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. This is shameless, isn't it? He's been vanquished, defeated, he's heard of Abraham's surprise victory, and he just wants to cut a political deal. How does Abraham respond? Verse 22. 
But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. No deal. No deal, says Abraham. He won't align himself with this king. I've put, he says, all my eggs in God's basket. God has made promises to me. I don't need help from you. I don't even need a thread from you. Do you see what the writer is is doing here? He's presenting two different kings as two different ways to respond to God. One king, Melchizedek, represents God and his promises. The other king, Sodom, represents human strength, we could say. This, This was a tough time for Abraham. A time of insecurity, a time of loneliness, a time, I'm sure, of doubt. Where will he find his security? Is it with the God most high? Or is it in earthly alliances? Abraham chooses, doesn't he, the God most high. He goes all in with the creator of heaven and earth, the almighty, powerful, promise-keeping God. The God who's called him into relationship with himself has delivered him from his enemies. Why would he need to bother with any other king? The nation of, of Israel that followed was, was constantly tempted to deal with their insecurity through alliances, earthly alliances, packed with nations, uh, giving themselves to pagan gods, and with tragic consequences. This incident taught them you don't need to do that. You have the, the powerful, promise-keeping God. Go and nail your colours to his mast just like your forefather Abraham did. What about us? What about you? In in the face of the threats, uh, the insecurities, the difficulties of life, where will you put your trust? Will we put it in earthly alliances or in the God's most high? There's so many ways, aren't there, we can just try and hedge our bets, make alliances with the world. In the compromise of our words, in the self-justification of our thinking, in the use of our resources. Abraham was all in with the powerful promise-keeping gods. Not even a threat did he want. He refused to depend on anyone else for strength and security. God promises to keep his people. The walk of faith is difficult, but he promises to keep his people. A promise sealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world not just to bring bread and wine, but to offer himself on a cross 
for us, that we might be forgiven, that we might know God for ourselves. What a great way to be assured of the love and the blessing of God. Will we ally ourselves with this King? Shall we pray? Lord God, we do thank you for the uh, person of Abraham, for all that we can learn uh, through him, for the fact he is the man of faith. He chooses to put his trust in you, to go all in uh, with you. And Lord, we pray that we may um, learn something uh, from him of that, and of this character at Melchizedek and his foreshadowing of Jesus, that we might be people who go all in and ally ourselves with the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's King. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to, uh, to do that in the big things and the small things of life, that you'd mould us, that you'd shape us, that you'd change our hearts uh, and perspectives and minds, that we might long to be people who serve you first and foremost, put our trust in you, and through that, let the glory be given to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.